Hey everyone, welcome to our fourth Universalist video. My name is Reverend Skyler Vogel. I serve as the senior minister here at our congregation. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm delighted to be here with you to share our Easter Sunday service this year of 2022. In this video, you will hear a reading, you'll hear my reflection, and then you'll hear a lively discussion between myself and our director of religious education, Ember Kelly. You're invited to check out our videos every single week. We produce them on every Sunday, no matter who is preaching or who's in the pulpit. They are posted on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see and hear, we hope you'll give us a positive review to like and comment, share and subscribe to share the fourth Universalist message further. Finally, we acknowledge that our community here in New York City is located on the land of the Muncie Lenape people. This acknowledgement is part of our continuing process of dismantling ongoing legacies of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as we embrace the eighth Unitarian Universalist principle and move forward together as a community. Thanks again for watching. We begin with our reading. by the Irish writer and theologian, Peter Rollins. Without equivocation or hesitation, I fully and completely admit that I deny the resurrection of Christ. This is something that anyone who knows me could tell you, and I am not afraid to say it publicly, no matter what some people may think. I deny the resurrection of Christ every time I do not serve at the feet of the oppressed, each day that I turn my back on the poor. I deny the resurrection of Christ when I close my ears to the cries of the downtrodden and lend my support to an unjust and corrupt system. However, there are moments when I affirm the resurrection few and far between as they are. I affirm it when I stand up for those who are forced to live on their knees, when I speak for those who have had their tongues torn out, when I cry for those who have no more tears left to shed. Here ends the reading. It is easy sometimes to forget just how radical the religion of Jesus was. How unusual. Today, we so often see religion and morality tied together as the exact same thing. Today, we see religion as inherently offering hope, both in this life and the next. Today, we see religion as available to really anyone who wants it. But in the ancient world, it was not always so. Imagine a world where most everyone believed that after you died, you went to a sad, 
bland, eternally depressing place. And there was no escaping that. No matter how virtuous you lived, no matter who you were or what you did. Imagine a world where most of the gods and deities had their own particular flavor and following. And those deities often acted erratically, without clear moral sensibilities. Religion was sometimes less about right and wrong and more about appeasing a divinity. This was the world of the Roman Jupiter, the Greek Zeus, the Egyptian Amun-Ra, and many other deities of many different pantheons and beliefs. There were exceptions, of course. Philosophy, in many ways, occupied the moral space in the ancient Western world that religion often vacated, inspiring many schools of thoughts that we still talk about today. And there was one small nation on the far eastern shores of the Mediterranean, the people of Israel, who believed in a God that was not just all-powerful, but also just and good. A God that cared deeply that their followers were doing the right thing and worshiping the right kind of God. The kind of God who rewarded the righteous in this life and the next. This was the religious framework that Jesus was born into, his disciples followed, that he and his descendants would carry with them and challenge the religious norms of the ancient world. Today, it's easy to see religion, especially in the United States, as a deeply conservative force. Often, Christianity's loudest voices oppose change and cling to the past. But they are often poor historians. Jesus was killed not for defending the status quo, but for challenging it. The ancient world, in addition to having a very different religious framework than today, it was also a place, it's important to remember, was full of suffering and oppression. Israel had been recently conquered by Rome, who had set up a Jewish puppet, King Herod, to give their occupation legitimacy. Of course, Israel was also no stranger to occupation. For hundreds of years, it had been under empire, Babylonian, Persian, Greek. The Romans were only the most recent. Contrary to public perception, though, the Romans could be quite tolerant of religious diversity. They cared very little about the God that the Jewish people worshipped. To them, it was just another random deity across thousands of others throughout the empire. What they did care about, though, and what they insisted on was that everyone, including the Jewish people, worship the imperial gods, often the emperor himself, a sign of respect and loyalty. Of course, when the Jewish people refused, they saw it very differently. They believed there was only one God and honoring others was sacrilege. To the Romans, this concept was completely foreign. In a world of countless other gods, what difference, they said, did it make to honor a couple more. They saw the Jews as needlessly obstinate and troublesome. Jesus was one of these. 
He preached openly about the kingdom of God being at hand and how the last would be first. And he drew large crowds that proclaimed him the Son of God and the coming Messiah. It's not surprising that the Romans found this upsetting. It made them nervous, and it made their puppet kings nervous too, who knew that they served only as long as they kept the peace. And so they responded. They used their power, used Herod's government backed by Rome to arrest and execute Jesus. Another radical preacher, preaching a better, different world, easily dispatched. Except 2,000 years later, we know it didn't turn out that way. Yes, they succeeded in killing Jesus. They succeeded in humiliating him, mocking him, scattering his followers. Yes, the simple carpenter from Galilee who urged his people to love his neighbor, to love their enemy, to bless the meek and the poor. He was no match for Herod or Pilate or Rome. Jesus had no army. He was not a king, nor general. He had no riches. He was not particularly impressive in the ways of the world. But we also know that the story does not end there. As Christians tell it, three days after Jesus dies, he rose again. And 2,000 years later, billions of people remember that today. His resurrection was not simply about a man defying death. It was not simply about a man being revealed as the Son of God. Not simply a fancy miracle to impress, to prove that a religious idea was correct. His resurrection and Easter itself is a radical statement about the restructuring of the whole entire world. About power and who mattered and who got the final say. We know that the Jewish people were not the only oppressed people in the Roman Empire. Outside of Rome itself, almost everywhere else in the empire was subjugated land. Palestine, North Africa, Greece, Spain, many places teemed with conquered people whose culture, religion, structures of society had been disrupted and dismantled systemically by the Romans. A vast majority of these people were poor. Many were slaves, and millions could see themselves in the man who was Jesus. They were children, too, of humble and hardworking parents, at times homeless and uprooted, unstable life, lives, living in fear and subjected by the random whims of the despots who governed them. Many others saw themselves in the people that Jesus lifted up, in his teachings, who he honored and blessed the outcasts, the disgraced, the sick, the convicts, the sex workers. We know that most of these people, to quote Thomas Hobbes, that they lived lives like Jesus that were poor, nasty, brutal, and short. They would know that they would not appear in the history books 
They knew they lived in a world that cared little about them. Their only hope, often praying to fickle gods who, many, who may, uh, may not care much about them. So put yourselves in their shoes. Imagine the feelings of these millions of people upon hearing of this man named Jesus, a holy person who said for the first time that they mattered, that said that there was just one God and that that one God believed in them and thought they were important and loved them and would not just love them but fight for them. Imagine being one of those millions of oppressed people and hearing about a God that was so powerful that he could raise a man from the dead, a man that wasn't that different from them, a God that would defy the power that oppressed you, that kept you down and your family down, a God that would take the radical act to help lift that boot off your neck. This was a God for so many for the first time that was on their side. Suddenly they weren't suffering alone anymore. They were seen and heard by the most powerful and wonderful being they could imagine. It would change those people's lives. And their devotion to this new religion would change the world. If you wonder why Christians were willing to be torn apart by lions in arenas because of their Christian faith, this is why. Because Christianity told them that they mattered, that their lives, no matter how poor or miserable, mattered. Christianity, at its very best from its beginning, represents its subversion of a world order that had ruled for a very long time, that told people that what mattered most was power and money and influence, a world order that called domination justice. When Rome humiliated and tortured and murdered Jesus, they thought from that world order that they had won. But Christianity in its radical message said no. It said to those millions of people throughout the empire, the powerful do not have the last word. It isn't power that mattered, Jesus said. It is love. It is not strength, but truth. They may humiliate you and torture you and kill you. They may force you into lives of servitude and slavery. But if God is with you and loves you and God is more powerful than anything, all the Romes out there that have been and are and will ever be. To quote Paul's letter to the church in Rome, if God is with us, who can be against us? The question is, of course, rhetorical. The empire may have power here on earth, but there is a deeper power in this universe, the power of goodness, truth, and love. And that cannot be defeated. The religion of Jesus is this profound gift. It is a sacred key that no oppressor can take away. To quote Martin Luther in the old hymn, the body they may kill, God's truth 
abideth still. So whether here we believe in the literal resurrection of Christ, if we here believe in Christianity, identify as Christian or not, or maybe we don't even believe in God as many Unitarian Universalists do not, I hope we can feel the deep resonance of what Easter has meant, the resurrection has meant, for so many people, for so many hundreds of years. It has meant hope for a better future. It has meant a love that means we're not alone. It has meant the comfort that our lives are important. No matter what anyone else says, no matter what our position of life is, no matter what family we are born into, it means a beautiful freedom. Our lives are not defined by those with power over us. This is Easter's good news. It was radical 2,000 years ago. It should be commonplace today. It is too often forgotten. May we live this Easter blessing to now for ourselves for all of those who need to hear this good news, that they matter, that their lives matter, that God loves each and every one of us, no matter who we are. May it be so, and amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Ember Kelly. I'm the Director of Religious Education here at Fourth Universalist, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm so excited, Reverend Schuyler, to get to talk a little bit about Easter. I love Easter. Thank you, Ember. Uh, I love Easter. I love the optimism. We have the Easter bunny here. Um, and Ember, I know it has a name, right? Um, uh, this, is, this is a floppy bunny who came to visit for our time for all ages today because the Easter bunny was busy. Easter bunny has a big schedule today, I hear. It's a busy day for, for them. So. A hectic day, a hectic day. But, you know, I really enjoyed getting to uh, explore Easter with your, with your message today. Um, you know, I... I've mentioned it before in past uh, getting the message recordings that, um, you know, when I when I was applying at Unitarian Universalist churches, I figured it would mean like that maybe Easter and Christmas would be a little bit easier, um, you know, because like, hey, they, they don't really do those. <laughs> but no, instead, it means we got to do those plus the other, you know. So, I mean, this week we got full moon, Ramadan, Passover and Easter just not Greek Orthodox Easter. That's the only one that is not following this weekend that I know of. I know you kind of, there's a degree of like collect them all. You know, we, you know, we've had Passover seders almost every year um, uh, because we have Jewish, the Jewish members in our congregation. Um, we haven't had any particular Ramadan uh, observances here, but we do have Muslim UU members as well. Uh, yeah, and of course we had, you know, sort of spring uh, earth-centered celebrations. Uh, but Easter's hard for you use too because it's 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 not it's we have to be inclusive. It's a it's a many of our tradition specific holidays happen off Sunday morning, and so if you're if you're not really into Christmas, right, you don't have to come to the Christmas Eve service, which is at like five o'clock on a on, you know whatever day it is, you know, or if you're not really into Earth Center traditions, you don't have to come to Equinox service, which happens at seven o'clock evenings, right? But Easter's Easter's on a Sunday, and so if we celebrate Easter which our tradition is, and in most UU spaces we do, you kind of have to talk about Easter. Uh, you have to talk about it as a Christian holiday, because otherwise uh, you're not, for me anyway, you're not respecting 
the those members uh, and people who actually ex want an Easter experience, right? And so you, if you're labeling an Easter Sunday, it, it should feel like Easter if you're a Christian in the same way that if we have a Passover Seder, uh, it should feel like a real Seder uh, for, for Jewish folks. So um, so, so I, it is a complicated thing. It's, it's, it'd be easier if we were just Christian, right? Um, uh, because we could just kind of roll and be like, this is what we are. Um, but uh, we kind of have to have this balance of how do we make this Easter service feel feel Eastery and be Eastery, but also be a space that is meaningful and inclusive of people who are not not Christian um, and who aren't, um, you know, who don't observe it outside of the service. I'm curious, as you prepared, was there any like books, any resources, any, you know, particular thinkers that you, that you kind of drew from? Well, I, I tend to use Easter as an opportunity every year to reflect on, on Christianity um, and explicitly. Um, you know, Fourth Universalist is not, not a Christian community. We do have Christian members. Um, we have Christian staff. And we have a Christian heritage, of course. Um, and so I use it as a chance to think about okay, what, is, what does Christianity have to say to us uh, in this moment in time? Um, or what is our relationship with Christianity in this time? And so, so for this Sunday, I, I was looking at the, the histories of Christianity um, you know, coming out of sort of its origins 2,000 years ago, uh, but looking at it from, a, from a, an angle of, of liberation theology, which is a, a, a theological framework that uh, emerged in, in a technical way in this last, over the last 100 years, but has its roots far, far back. Uh, and I think it speaks to sort of the initial reason why Christianity was so appealing to so many uh, in the ancient world, uh, and we talk a little bit about that um, and what Christianity offered people that maybe they were they weren't getting, um, and and not only weren't they getting, but they were also they were also suffering in, in real ways that Christianity had an answer to and had some words of comfort for. Right, oh, me me and liberation theology. You know, I was joking with you as we were preparing that. You know, I could I could probably talk about liberation theology in my sleep. I wrote so many papers about it during my my seminary experiences, two seminary experiences. Um, you know, it is it is uh, familiar ground for me. Um, one of the one of the ones that I uh, particularly drew on in like my thesis work as well as in some classes uh, was out, so a lot of these liberation theology theologies come from the developing world, um, you know, so whether that's like Latin and South America, whether that's Asia, a lot of them are coming from contexts where they're dealing with colonialism, dealing with, you know, the ravages of, of development, the ravages of capitalism, they're, they're seeing this firsthand, and they're saying, what does Christianity in our primarily Christian dominant culture, what does it have to say to this instead of um, just the oftentimes, um, just, okay, well, it'll be better when you get to heaven, like, what, what can we what can we do to bring justice now? And it's it's something that really is inspiring to me. But one of the ones I drew on was out of uh, Korea, uh, and that was uh, Minjung theology, um, which kind of looked at how Jesus regularly had like this large group of people that were basically like drawn to him, um, and you know, kind of developing a mass movement in the way that we think about it today in terms of like political movements and in terms of social movements that you have to develop like this this group of people that are all dedicated to the same thing. In this case, it was, you know, Jesus's message of the, the kingdom of heaven here on earth and of liberation in a sense. Um, I think, you know, that there's a lot of, of imagery in, in Christianity of, of Jesus being this liberator. Is there any that, you know, particularly inspire you? I think, I think Jesus's humility is really powerful. I think, 
um, the contrast with the, a savior messiah figure that is not not defined by his strength, his power, his wealth, his ability to dominate, uh, is so often our heroes uh, are, are presented to us. Uh, that's very powerful to me. I mean, that, that Christianity from the very start was you know, presented an alternative vision of what, what this hero is going to look like, right? He's not going to be the guy who marshals violence against the oppressor. Uh, and sometimes you need violence against the oppressor, but, but that's a very common trope, right? And so to have somebody who doesn't do that, right, but instead speaks about love and, and forgiveness and lifting up the meek, right, and saying that the, the, you know, the last shall be first. Um, it's really a subversion of, of, of these very common narratives uh, that, that define our relationships based on power and our worth based on our power. Um, and uh, I think part of what I tried to do in this sermon was talk about how Christianity, and I think Jesus, is very effectively offered an alternative for sort of the, uh, for the culture uh, at the time, but also our culture today, right, that equates, equates power with righteousness uh, or equates wealth with, with worthiness. Um, and Jesus, I think, comes and says, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, actually, any of that stuff. Uh, but there's, there's a deeper law to the universe, uh, deep, something that is more, more important and ultimately more powerful than, you know, uh, than how much money you have or your ability to win, uh, win you know, or conquer. Uh, and it's very, it's very, very inspiring for people who often are, you know, who feel like they don't have any hope, right? Or they don't have, you know, if... Uh, if they're being oppressed or being pushed down in society, if that's all there is, that's a very sad place. And so Christianity came and said, that's not all there is, in fact. And not only is that not all there is, but like the most powerful, most wonderful, most beautiful thing in the universe is actually on your side and is going to make it right. Um, and that's people, you know, how, how could you not love that? Which is why it, you know, appealed to largely um, people at the margins in, in Roman society. Uh, you know, but that's, you know, the interesting thing. And you, you talked about how liberation theology kind of more developed in the last hundred years, uh, but that it had roots throughout it all, because for a lot of Christianity, once once it became the official state religion of the, the Roman Empire, that it uh, adopted specific narratives and you know, Jesus's humility was suddenly used to preach, uh, hey, you should just accept what you're dealt in life. Like, look, look, Jesus um, accepted what he was dealt in life. Why can't you just, uh, you know, be okay with suffering for your entire life while we're all opulently rich? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it did get lost in the in the shuffle of being co-opted by the establishment. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when the religion became co-opted by Rome, you know, they didn't do it. They didn't do it because they wanted to create a society that was based on the life of Jesus, right? They didn't want it. They didn't do it because they, they wanted the last to be first, right? And they were going to go and free all the slaves uh, in Rome that were working in horrible conditions in North African mines, right? You're just dying by the thousands, right? They, that's not that what they were thinking about. Um, they were seeing it as a way to unify uh, a, an empire that was on the decline uh, and that they could push a sort of a, a doctrinal and uh, philosophical consistency that would bring people together to resist some of these these forces of, of decline and, and who they perceive to be uh, uh, sort of pagan irregularities, basically. Um, and uh, 
and and so it changed. It became less. It became it became an instrument for empire, uh, for their very empire that it was designed to protest. Yeah, I. Um, oh gosh, G getting me started on liberation theology. You know, I'm doing my best to make sure this one doesn't go for like an hour because we do also have to make sure we're set up for Easter. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that um, it's it's interesting how. Um, you know, Rome then, and we, we talked a little bit about this as we were preparing that, that, um, uh, the Roman narrative became like, ah, uh, you know, as, as Christianity became the dominant religion, then it was like, you know, wow, this religion is so much better than everything else. And you have to can be this or else, you know, you're, you're the outsider. Um, and they're, they're very much developed like a, a, a in the West, a, a Christian centrism, um, you know, how do we, as as a tradition that comes out of Christianity, how do you think we make sure to still appreciate? You know, how do we how do we appreciate that some of these narratives that were sold uh, are are from this influence of empire? Yeah, that's such a great great question, um, and I think it bears. You know, there's a whole other there's i i have been thinking about a while of having sort of a, a sermon series of one is sort of like the case for monotheism and the other being the case for polytheism because i think that there are virtues that each of these sort of very broad brush traditions right offer to people um Christ, you know monotheism offers a clear sense of right and wrong a moral framework for the universe that is uh, very uh, firm and can also be very empowering right um, but the flip side of that is that polytheism is, uh, in some ways, celebrates diversity, right? It's not about it's not about you're right and I'm wrong or sort of black and white thinking. It's about shades of, of many different forms of, of sacredness. Uh, and um, I think one of the things that people in the ancient world felt when Christianity came into the scene is like you had all these people who who were kind of used to following their own star, essentially. You know, I really I'm really into like. I'm really into this God and this thing that this God represents. And so like, that's going to be my thing. And I'm really into that. Uh, or I'm really into like, uh, you know, connecting to my family. So I'm going to be really focused on like my family shrines uh, or, or whatever. And Christianity basically was like, that's all nonsense. It's crap. Uh, there's only one way to do anything and like follow this. Uh, and that was very disruptive for, for the ancient world. It's very difficult for many in the ancient world to understand and to also uh, to, to not feel in their own way persecuted. Um, you know, Christians to be very rigid, very fundamentalist. Uh, many of the writings of the ancient, ancient philosophers, particularly uh, around the time of Christianity's um, pushing the boundary, right? There's, you know, there's a time when Christianity was, was very much powerless. And then there was a time, as often happens in society, where there's a, a point of power where uh, it becomes a, a question of who's actually going to win this struggle, right? The power struggle. And in that moment, when when people, the ancient world, the philosophers of the old traditions, actually realized they were in real threat to losing out to Christianity, there was a real feeling that a lot of the writings mirror a lot of what we see t today when when sort of liberal progressive folks write about mega and Trump conservatism. Uh, a real sense of like, these people are anti-intellectual, they don't want to have a conversation about the different traditions of thought and, and philosophy, and they're not thinking reasonably. All they say is this, you know, this 
cockeyed story about this guy rising from the dead doesn't make any sense. It, you know, how can they actually believe that stuff? And, and then they're trying to force it down our throats as if it's like, um, and so that's fascinating, right? And so in some ways, the ancient world was, uh, you know, they, they, they were resistant, you know, they, they were resistant to what they perceived as Christianity's moral fundamentalism, um, which for many people was experienced as liberating uh, uh, theology, right? That, you know, Christianity said, like, it doesn't matter who you are, you're loved by God, and this God has your back. To others, it felt like a dismissal of centuries of tradition and intellectual uh, reasoning uh, that they couldn't understand. And so it's a real tension. And I think part of what I tried to do in this Easter service is lift up the gift that Christianity gave people. But there's a whole other sermon that could be about the, um, the loss that Christianity brought, um, that, that Christianity at the time was, was in many ways vehemently anti-intellectual, vehemently disrespectful of other religious traditions um, in a way that, um, that the ancient world was not. Um, you know, there's tons of stories of Christians burning temples, burning libraries, uh, of what they perceived as heretical texts that weren't even Christian. They were just other people's religious books and temples and things. Um, and that's the flip side of it, too. We often hear a Christian narrative of like, oh, the Christians were really persecuted. And, and they were at times. But often those are deeply overblown. And Christians were equal, if not greater, persecutors uh, and destroyers of other traditions once they had the power to do so. I mean, that, that, that will preach on Easter. <laughs> I, I want to leave people their holidays. I don't want to <laughs> show up and be like, let me tell you. But there will be, you know, I think, I think it's worth hearing, right? Because no, I think it'd be, a, uh, it'd be a fascinating message to hear. I, I am very excited at the prospect of this as a future message. There's a great book. I think it's called The Darkening Age. Um, and I can't remember who the author is, but it talks a lot about about the experience from the from ancient thinkers and and philosophers about just the fear that comes with came with the rise of Christianity uh, and the real sense of loss that occurred from you know if you were if you were uh, you know in the ancient world there was no there was no alternative framework for religious ideas until Christianity and Judaism and Judaism was was so, was so small and it was you know sort of unique in its sense of it appealed to people who are Jewish um, but to many Romans and Greeks at the time, it was it was uh, more of an anomaly, uh, right. and then it started spreading right under the form of Christianity, and it was really really unsettling for them. Well, I look forward to that future message and future future getting the message, um, Reverend Schuyler. As always, it's it's wonderful to get to sit down with you. Thanks, Ember. I appreciate it. Thank you all. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. Happy Ramadan, uh, and whatever traditions you celebrate. Um, Happy Libra full moon, you know, got to make sure to hit that one in there too. Libra full moon. Yeah, as Libras, you know, we celebrate that, both of us. <laughs> okay, thanks everybody. <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs>